It's the holiday time and I need a holiday song, so this one is the one. <laughs> Hi, everybody. <laughs> My best efforts on this holiday season. So good. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to Ranking the Beatles, episode number 26. Man. Woo. 26. I can't believe we've done that many. What a year it has been so far. Oh, you're telling me. At RTB headquarters. Goodness. Yeah. It has been everything and nothing at the same time. <laughs> uh, that's a pretty accurate statement. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, hope everyone is doing great as always, having a wonderful week. Um, there's been uh, a lot of chat the last week on the uh, on the old podcast front. Seems like people are digging it, so yes. that's good. Yes. It's good. Glad you guys. Glad you folks are all here. Because today is a special day. We have a special guest. It's pretty cool. Um, I don't know if y'all are ready for this jelly today. Do you I, think they're ready? I sure hope so, because we have to release this episode. Yeah. So whether you're ready or not, tough noogies. Friends, our guest today is a well-known Beatles author and historian. He's the author of a number of critically acclaimed books that take up a lot of space on the shelves in this house, including The Beatles Records on VJ, The Beatles Story on Capitol Records Part 1 and 2, The Beatles on Apple Records, The Beatles Solo on Apple Records, The Beatles Are Coming, The Birth of Beatlemania in America, The Beatles and Sgt. Pepper, A Fan's Perspective, The Beatles' White Album and the Launch of Apple, and The Beatles Get Back to Abbey Road, yeah. And his most recent book, The Beatles Finally Let It Be. I just blacked out for a second. That's a lot of books. A lot of books. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, he's been a consultant on Beatles projects, including the 2009 catalog reissue, the Capitol Albums box sets, and the deluxe edition of Sgt. Pepper. Uh, he's a regular speaker at uh, various Beatles conventions, and he wrote the questions for the Beatles' Trivial Pursuit, which has caused... Many nights of head exploding, head exploding confusion and confoundment in the rank in the Beatles household. Oh, we will touch on that tonight. We certainly will. <laughs> I have questions. He's got answers. And in his spare time, well, he's a tax attorney. When he's not writing 20,000 books about the Beatles, also a tax attorney. So there you go. Anywho, I say let's just jump into this. What do you say? Uh, yes, please. Let's do it. Friends, please welcome to the show the one and only Mr. Bruce Spicer. Yes. Bruce, welcome to the show, my friend. Oh, glad to be here. Particularly fun to be doing a show with somebody in New Orleans, and I'm in New Orleans. Right. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I wish we could do it in person, and hopefully whenever we get past uh, you know, lockdowns and you know, pandemics, we can do it in person at some point. That'd be great. I mean, I've done Australia recently, so it's about time I did New Orleans. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> you did a podcast out of Australia? Yeah. Oh, cool. What time did you have to do it here? Uh, well, he actually gave me a, a normal time, so it worked oh, nice. out fine. Very cool. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Very nice. How have you been uh, faring during 
But one thing months. about when you do a podcast with Australia, you have to realize that as you're doing it, it's truly yesterday and today. Yes. <laughs> nice. Yes. Well played. <laughs> how have you? Uh, how have you been faring during the last you know nine months of of strangeness? I've I've been fortunate in that my uh, law practice. I have my own business office in New Orleans mm-hmm. in a very good office building, so I have not missed a day of work. My secretary, however, missed several months of work, so I mm. had to learn how to do everything. Yeah. I know how to refill the postage. I now know how to, you know, you name it, I can do it. <laughs> nice. I mean, there's something to be said for, you know, self-improvement and learning new skills during yeah. all this yeah. time. You know, Paul makes a record. You learn how to refill the postage. Like, that's, that's, right. that's a win-win. <laughs> and if somebody orders a book from my website, I know how to pack the books now. I did Beautiful. plenty of those. <laughs> Look at that. Nice. That's wonderful. Well, let's uh, let's hop into it. You know, one of the things I want to kind of go back to, you know, I, I every time I see an article that you're featured in, uh, you know, it just says like, you know, lifelong Beatles fan, Bruce Spizer. But, you know, I want to know, like, what was the what's the moment for you that first, you know, that you, you that you first encountered the Beatles? What catches your your attention first? I was a big listener to the radio since the age of two mm-hmm. and um, the school bus that went back and forth to Newman School had a radio toward the front and I would sit toward the front on the school bus because I wanted to always hear the radio. And I remember right after we returned from Christmas break in early 1964 that I heard this song and it just jumped out at me. And afterwards, the disc jockey had said this, you know, song is I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles. And I thought, well, this is, that's a strange name for a group and a really great song. And, you know, and I heard it a bunch on the radio, both in, in my room, because I had a radio in my room and kept hearing it on the school bus. And when the Beatles album Meet the Beatles came out, I told my mother I wanted to go to the record store and get the album. And I'd never bought an album before. And um, so the first album and I was going to try to buy it with my own money, but I couldn't afford it. So <laughs> my mom paid for it. What store and did I you buy it from? I a copy of Meet the Beatles. And there's a sticker on the back of it that says, um, this album belongs to, and then I wrote in my name, Bruce Spizer, and then below that it said, and it came from Studio A, of course. Nice. So, do you so remember? Do you remember where you bought it from? Studio A. Okay, so that was, that, that was was that a That's store in town? Store. Okay, yeah. okay. It was in the Lakeview neighborhood of New Orleans, off Harrison Avenue. Okay, interesting. I grew up off of Robert E. Lee, so not not too far from there. All my family was kind of in that Harrison Avenue, yeah. Robert E. Lee area. Cool. By Harrison, we don't mean George Harrison Avenue. Right. <laughs> we have to have to specify on the show. Yes. So, so you get in, you know, at, at an at an early early age. What's it like, kind of going through that tra- trajectory of of their career on the younger side of things? You said you were in second grade. Well, I'd have been ten years old, uh, nine, not, probably nine years old when I first heard "I Want to Hold Your Hand." Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, as they got, you know, progressively more mature, and you know weirder like it, it it didn't did it like how did it sit with you as a younger fan well i remember I, I i loved all the records and then when i first heard strawberry fields forever on the radio i did not like it mm-hmm. i liked penny lane mm-hmm. however upon repeated listenings i did begin to appreciate strawberry fields forever but initially it was like well this is kind of weird and kind of what's it doing and Penny Lane's nice and upbeat. So, yeah, yeah. You know, so I, I love Penny Lane from the start. And Strawberry Fields took me a couple of listings to get into it. Sure. 
And at, at what point in your in your listenership do you kind of go all in as a fan, as far as like collecting things and starting to kind of go to that you know more hardcore side of things? I didn't become a hardcore collector until many many years later. You know, I love the music, and so um, the the single that I remember going craziest for was Hey Jude. Mm -hmm. I was up at camp in Harrison, Maine, and at night you could get WABC. And I remember the last night at camp hearing Hey Jude, and I got back to New Orleans. You know, a day or so later, I went straight to Studio A <laughs> and went for the Beatles album section because I thought it had to be an album cut because it was so long. Mm -hmm. And the owner of the store, Bill, said, uh, can I help you with something? I said, yeah, I'm looking for the new Beatles album. And he said, oh, there's no new Beatles album. They have a new single coming out. And I said, well, I don't think that's possible. I heard this song. It had to have been six, seven, eight minutes long. And he said, well, do you know the name of it? And I said, I think it was Hey Jude. And he said, yeah, yeah, that's the new single. And I said, well, how can that be a single? It's seven or eight <laughs> it's minutes <so> long. long. <laughs> and, of course, when the single came out, it was seven minutes, 11 seconds long. Mm -hmm. And then when the White Album came out, I was, of course, all, you know, calling him. Hey, do you have it yet? You know, so yeah. those were the ones I remember the most of having the most excitement for the Hey Jude single on the White Album. Mm -hmm. I guess you get a little bit older. You graduate, gra uh, graduate high school, go to college and things, you know, grow on to become a professional. When do... When do the books come into play? When do you start writing the books? What spurs on the idea to, to write the books? Kind of a couple of crazy things happened at the same time. I settled a big lawsuit. I was doing a class action, a RISA case, trying to get retirees who have been screwed out of their pensions, their pensions back. I worked on it for four years. I got a really big check. Mm -hmm. And also at the same time, I had noticed that roaches had eaten the spines of my Beatle album covers. Oof. Oh, no. Living in New Orleans, you yeah. can relate. Yeah. So... Anyway, they you know, just the Beatle albums. They did leave Meet the Beatles alone, thank goodness. <laughs> so anyway, I wanted to repurchase those albums, but I did not want to get, you know, nineteen, you know, nineties pressings of those song records. So I start doing a little bit of looking at the old albums and I noticed that um there were a lot of things written about those early albums, like the DJ introducing the Beatles, but what I was reading didn't make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. So I would talk to record dealers about it, and they go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's in every book, you know. And I, being an attorney, I thought, what if every book's wrong? <laughs> so I did some research and determined every book was wrong about introducing the Beatles. And I thought, well, I have some disposable income from that lawsuit. So I will, in my own naivety, publish a book on the Beatles records on VJ. And, and I realized I would have to self-publish it because no one in their right mind would publish a book on that. <laughs> so, you know, here, here would have been my pitch. Hi, I want to do a book on the Beatles records on the VJ label. Now, VJ was a little R&B company out of Chicago that had the rights to the Beatles songs for about two years maximum. They put out, why are you laughing at me? So, anyway, <laughs> you know, do so you validate? I, <laughs> so, you know, I went ahead and put out the book myself, and it was really well received. Mm hmm and as soon as the book came out, people were like, well, when's your Capitol book coming out? And I was oh, okay. Uh, so I started doing a book on the Capitol records. And even before that came out, people were like, oh, I'm glad you're doing a Capitol book. When's the book on Apple coming out? <laughs> so it ended up being a whole series of books on the Beatles' American records. Mm -hmm. I ended up doing a book on how Beatlemania evolved in America called The Beatles Are Coming. And then I retired, you know, and uh, 
you know, Frank Daniels, uh, Bruce, you need to do a book on the British records. And I said, no, I don't. And eventually he talked <laughs> me into it and we get it together. <laughs> and then I retired again. And then for the anniversary of Sgt. Pepper, for the, you know, the 50th anniversary, I'd written a really great article. And I thought, okay, where can I get it published? And I thought, you know, the problem is it's kind of too long for an article and nobody will ever have the color images I want to go with it. So I thought, maybe I'll put it out myself. And then I thought, wait a minute. What if I did a book on the Sgt. Pepper album from a fan's perspective? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and that's when I got the idea to ask for fan recollections from people and also the idea to get other people to contribute to the book, you know, to write about what was going on in Canada, what was going on in the world at the time, what was going on in, you know, in film and music. And so I kind of assembled a team, put the book out, and people were like, well, that's really nice, Bruce. I really like the book. Of course, you're going to do, you know, one, uh, you know, for the White Album. And, of course, I had to because that's my favorite album. Yeah. <laughs> I, idea, I would just do this Beatles album series in the same basic format. So mm -hmm. the format is it's a nine-by-nine nine book. It's about, you know, 200 pages. And it covers how the records uh, came out, the, you know, in America and, you know, goes through reviews and things, how it was perceived in the United Kingdom and in Canada, then how uh, Sussman, a Beatle fan, writes what was going out in the world. Frank Daniels writes about what was going on in film and music during that time frame. And then we have these fan recollections from all sorts of different people, everyday fans, some of them musicians like Billy Joel, mm -hmm. some of them ordinary people, most ordinary people. And then the last section goes over how the songs were recorded so um you know it's a format i like it of course yeah. has a, at least 100 images in the book of color and original black and white and uh it's been a lot of fun doing it how long do how long does the research take you on average for for a book like that i can knock out a book in a year's time that's impressive wow as an attorney i'm used to working quickly and, and i view my books as the same way i would prepare a lawsuit mm-hmm so as an attorney, you know, you have to prepare a lawsuit and the judge doesn't say, well, you've got two years to do this. So you need to learn to research quickly and write quickly. So in law, we go through what's called discovery, where you're reviewing documents and you're interviewing people and taking depositions. Mm -hmm. So I do something similar. Um, you know, I'm reviewing documents and I'm interviewing people to, you know, get their perspective of things. So I go through that process and I begin writing it. And I might find new documents and find more people to interview. So the writing changes and evolves as I do that. And then finally you reach a point where, you know, I've got this deadline, so ready or not, here it goes. Yeah. And fortunately, I've always been able to make my deadlines. <laughs> and is that the kind of research that feeds into, like, working on the Trivial Pursuit game? Yeah, to a certain extent. But that was a little bit different. and. You know, and on that, I used a lot of things I'd already researched. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, but when I do these books, I've done a lot of the research already. So in, when I do these album series books, it's just getting more of the contemporaneous, you know, more of the reviews that were out at the time and those types of things. So it's additional research, but I already have a lot of the research done already. Yeah. I, I remember a few years ago, we got the Beatles Trivial Pursuit and we had a few friends over, you know, everybody, you know, felt pretty confident in their knowledge. Well, not everyone. Yeah. Certainly, not everybody. Cer certainly not me. <laughs> you felt confident like you were there for the laughs. I, I just wanted to, like, watch you 
like everyone else nerd out. I was like, they're going to know all the answers. I'm going to make a fool of myself. It's going to be amazing. And I felt really good until the four vests came into the picture. Yeah. <laughs> then yeah, I was just like, I got nothing here. The problem with it was when you get down to the Beatles, it's really hard to write a lot of easy questions. Once you get past, name the four Beatles and what city did they come from? Right. <laughs> it's a little bit tricky. So yeah, and, and that's what I found. It was uh, it was challenging to do that because they said, well, you know, we want, you know, for you know this number of easy questions, this number of moderate questions, this number of hard questions, and so because you'd used up so many questions to get the easy and the moderate, so hard's got really hard. Yeah, they're real hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's still the, like, a constant joke for us. It's like, oh, the four vests. Of course, the four <laughs> vests. <laughs> what, um, you know, you've been doing this for a while now. What keeps Beatles music fresh for you at this point? Do you have, like, Beatle-free Beatle -free Fridays or something? Like, do you just, like, <laughs> remove them from your life once per week just to have a break or... <laughs> You know, it's when I'm working on a book, I really listen intensely to it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, sometimes when I did the book, The Beatles Solo on Apple, uh, it was interesting because, you know, when I started doing the John stuff, I had to listen to the John and Yoko albums like, OK, I need to listen to Two Virgins again. <laughs> OK. Intently. Like, to Life notes. of the Lions, Side Two of Life, Peace in Toronto, the wedding album. But in addition to that, um, for some reason, Wall and Bridges was never an album that I really particularly listened to that much. Mm -hmm. So for the book, I gained a great appreciation for that album because I listened to it multiple times and carefully and, you know, was able to pick up on the subtleties. Uh, Ram had been an album that I had really mixed emotions about. And, uh, and I really did. I was getting sick of doing the book. I hate to admit it. I was burnt out. I've done all these books on the Beatles, and now I'm doing this solo stuff that I really don't like as much. <laughs> and, you know, is anyone going to like this book? I don't even know if I like it. And what really turned it around was I interviewed Denny Sywell, who had drummed for Paul mm -hmm. on the um, on the album, uh, you know, the Ram album. And so when I called up Denny, I said, Denny, you know, I want to do something a little bit different. You know, I don't want to do the usual, tell me about the infighting and the drugs. Right. I just want to talk about every song that you drummed on and whatever you remember about it. And he said, oh, that should be interesting. <laughs> and so I learned a lot of stuff that I did not know mm -hmm. about the songs, and it gave me a new appreciation of the Ram album. And it stopped me from being burned out, and then the rest of the book was a sprint, and I really enjoyed doing it. Yeah. What were your mixed emotions about Ram? I'm curious. Because that's like a favorite uh, in our house. Yeah. There were a lot of the songs I just didn't like, to be perfectly blunt. I thought they were kind of, you know, too too cutesy or too this or too that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, well, you know, Heart of the Country's kind of bouncy, but eh. And then Denny says, well, you know, what we did to get that sound was we took a plastic garbage can, turned it upside down, and used it as the bass drum with a foot pedal. <laughs> you know, and rather than using cymbals, I used corrugated tin. And so, you know, you found out all these new, little neat and nuances. And I said, well... You know, one of the songs that I really like is Another Day, and they have this extra percussion sound once said, and he said, oh, that's me playing drums on a New York phone book. So, <laughs> you know, you learned all these, you know, little exciting things, because that's the kind of stuff I really like. Yeah, so, that's the stuff that's interesting. So that, you know, got me, and so I got a better appreciation for those recording sessions. What aside, Beatles aside, what other music floats your boat? What's your other frequent go-tos? Well, I mean, growing up in the 60s, 
you know, I was a big fan of um, the coasters. And, well, I grew up at the 50s, really. I started listening to the radio probably in 1957, 58. Mm-hmm. So my favorite group before the Beatles was the coasters. Take out the papers and the trash. Are you don't get no spending cash. If you don't spell that kitchen floor, you ain't gonna rock and roll no more. Don't go back. You know, Charlie Brown, Along Came Joan, you know, Yakety Yak, mm-hmm. all that great stuff. King Curtis played saxophone on a lot of the coaster sings, and he also played saxophones for John Lennon's yeah, stuff. On the Imagine but, record, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I thought that was kind of neat, seeing that name again. Um, and then, of course, I was a big fan of the Four Seasons and the Beach Boys, and I loved the girl groups like the Shirelles and you know, a lot of the same music the Beatles loved, the Everly Brothers, uh, you know, that type of stuff. And so uh, when the British invasion came in, of course, I was a big Rolling Stones fan and the Kinks and things along those lines. And, um, you know, and also I'd always been a Bob Dylan fan. So I grew up on the, you know, the big music you'd expect of someone growing up in the 60s. Mm-hmm. You know, cream and, uh, and and boy, I love the monkeys. You know, yes, Absolutely same. Love the monkeys. Same. We so, are a big a big monkeys house over yeah, here. Yeah, I mean, it was great music. You know, yeah. so uh, that type of stuff. And then later on, I, I remember when I found out how old I began feeling. I was, I guess, it was around the year uh, two thousand, and I was in a record store in Greenwich Village, and this college student came up to me and said. Um, do you mind if I ask you some questions about music? And I said, no, it'll be fine. And she said, uh, you know, well, what your favorite groups? And I started mentioning the Beatles and all. And she said, well, what recent groups do you like? And I said, R.E.M. And she said, I said, recent groups. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, R.E.M. is like yeah. ancient history. <laughs> so that really was quite a quite an eye-opening experience for right. me. Yeah, I feel like all of the sort of 90s is now in the classic rock territory, which is, uh, I hate it. Well, it's funny because, you know, (laughs) we're in our late 30s, and so we have nieces and nephews who are teenagers, and one of them is really into music. And she'll always, you know, like she buys records, and we like go record shopping when we go visit and stuff like that. And um, so she'll send me new artists that she's into, and I'll listen to it, and it's like, oh, well, this sounds just like so-and-so from the 90s. Yeah. Like, yeah. there's one where I was like, oh, well, this is Juliana Hatfield. Check this out. Like, you're going to love this. You know, and I get a lot of things that, you know, Beatlesque type things or Beach Boy type things, you know. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I'll, I remember listening to an R.E.M. song, um, you know, you're in your most beautiful, but I'm, I'm botching the title slightly, but I'm listening to it, and I'm going, oh, my God, that's just a, a great Beach Boys song the Beach Boys never wrote or recorded. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and you do that, or when America came out with Sister Golden here, I was like, gee, that's the one of the best George songs he never recorded. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So it's funny how those things happen, you know, where you bring it back to an orientation of a period you're really familiar with, and, and you hear the influences. Uh, there's a saying that I have, and I don't think I invented it, because it just sounds like somebody must have thought of it before me, and I'm sure someone did. But, you know, and that's to say that there are two types of musicians today. Those influenced by the Beatles and liars. <laughs> I think two things. I think one, that's a hundred percent accurate, and two, you should completely own that. And that's like your scrambled eggs. You're like, there you go. Somebody else <laughs> did this first, right? No, no. Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm going to take credit for okay. that. Own that. That's that's fantastic. So, okay. <laughs> cool. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and hop into it. You ready to do this? Absolutely. So coming in at number one ninety one is 
Maggie May. All right, so I will give a brief rundown on the history of this song. Feel free to interject with anything that you know, because I'm sure okay. you know way more than I do on this one. <laughs> All right. So, dating back to the early 1800s, Maggie May is an old Liverpudlian folk song, the classic tale of a prostitute getting arrested for robbing her male customer. Uh, being a port town, much like New Orleans, uh, Liverpool was always a popular stopping point for sailors, and they would then go on shore leave, uh, get paid, and after a long stretch out at sea, they'd often be drawn in by the persuasions of the ladies of the night and occasionally yeah, on lime street yep and occasionally those women would then rob the sailors of their money or belongings so over the years the song goes through different variations um i think at one point it's uh it's peter street and then it becomes lime street um no doubt at some point this song makes its ears to the makes its way to the ears of a young john lennon and you know and even before that uh that actually it's not only uh a you know song that's been around in Liverpool. Actually, its origins where it's an American minstrel song, huh. dating back to 1856, and it was called "Darling Nellie Gray." Right. Okay. Interesting. So, so it dates back even further than uh, than that. Wow. Jesus. So at at some point it uh it hits the ears of a young John Lennon, possibly through his merchant seaman father Alfred. Um, but in 1957, a version of the song is released by the Viper Skiffle Group, produced by George Martin. Oh, Maggie, Maggie May, they have taken her away, and she never walked down Lime Street anymore. Well, that judge, he's really found her, robbing the homeward bound her, he's really robbing no good, Maggie May. That's right, and the, the story on George Martin with the Viper Skiffle Group is that you know, George had gone to see uh, Tommy Steele, who was a singer, mm-hmm. and backed up by this group called the Vipers, Viper Shipple Group. And George Martin was more impressed with them, so he signed them. And, of course, Tommy <laughs> Steele made a lot more money when he signed, I believe, to the Columbia label. And, and George was a little frustrated by that. So George produces the single. Uh, it is banned by the BBC because it's about prostitution. Uh, but it, no doubt at some point, John and friends must get a copy of it because it's almost identical to the version the Beatles inevitably cut. Oh, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Spot on. Now, here's the thing that you may not realize that before Capitol Records signed the Beatles, Capitol put out a bunch of, well, a bunch of, over 100 or so singles of British artists, mm-hmm. and they very rarely sold well. And one of the singles put out by Capitol was a song called Don't You Rock Me Daddy-O by the Viper Skiffle Group. <laughs> and that came out on Capitol. It was a number 10 hit in England. Care to guess how many copies it sold in the U.S. for Capitol? I'm going to guess four. <laughs> 1,640. I was close. Now, now, the follow-up song was called Cumberland Gap. Okay. And that sold... 449 copies. But what's interesting is if you flip over Cumberland Gap on the Capitol label, you will find Maggie May. You will find old dirty Maggie May. Interesting. 
Huh. Now, something else interesting about old dirty Maggie May. Maggie May, on the both the Parlophone single and the Capitol single, is spelled M-A-Y. Mm-hmm. But for reasons unknown to me, by the time it gets to the Let It Be album, Maggie May is spelled M-A-E. And uh, maybe they did that to try to say, gee, it's public domain, but we can claim copyright. They claim the copyright. Spell it differently. I don't know. That's as good a guess as any. (laughs) Um, But um, it's definitely when Mal Evans talks about the Beatles recording Maggie May in the Beatles book, it's always spelled M-A-Y. Yet by the time the album Let It Be comes out, it is M-A-E. Mm-hmm. Or it could be, for all we know, uh, you know, a typo. I mean, you know, E-R-T-Y, if you look at the keyboard, so I don't know. But anyway. <laughs> so I guess let's we'll, we'll jump to uh, January 2nd of 1969. The band arrives at Twickenham to start re- re- rehearsing songs for a new album slash TV performance uh, slash general project. They haven't quite decided what it's going to be yet. Um, but the big issue is John kind of has a problem. He is short on songs. He comes in with pretty much a seed of the idea for Don't Let Me Down. Uh, he's got the Everybody Had a Hard Year section of I've Got a Feeling. And I think Dig a Pony is complete or mostly complete. Pretty much, yeah. Pretty yeah. Much. Um, Paul has songs falling out of his back pocket. George <laughs> has an equal amount of songs that no one has bothered to touch over the last three years. Um, and John is also not in good physical shape because he's kind of in the throes of a heroin addiction right now. Uh, and the other issue is that the band's only had about two months off since they complete the White Album. Tensions were kind of creeping to the surface during that session. Uh, at some point, obviously, Ringo had left and then came back. But resentments are starting to build up over the years, and things are kind of coming to a head. Uh, so to ease the tension during the session, the band's frequently going into a variety of cover songs between takes. Everything from Dylan to early Lennon and McCartney, uh, rock and roll standards, old folk songs, and at some point, John latches back on to Maggie May, and he actually leads the band through it several times over multiple days and has an intention of wanting to record a full take of it. And I think that he was aiming to do that in the last day of the project. Um, but at the end of the day, they had spent so much time on a few other songs. It was just, you know, the day was over and they called it and that was the end of that. Um And they were kind of left with various little half takes of it, you know, here and there that eventually make their way onto the prepared possible album version that Glenn Johns puts together. And I think he does two versions of the record that are ultimately rejected. Correct. Is it, I think two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's a, uh, some people consider an earlier version of the album, but it's really not. He prepared an acetate Mm -hmm. with some of the songs from the sessions. And we believe he prepared that in late January. That should not be considered a get back album by any means, but it is an acetate of a bunch of the songs. Some of those versions ended up on his get back acetates. Some of them did not. And is that so more just like a take a let it be, for example? Is that more just like a here's an album's worth of the the choice cuts for your consideration? I think it was more done to them, and you know you could do an album like this. Yeah, and we could put this out. It would be a lot of fun. This is the Beatles, you know, with you guys relaxed in the studio with your socks off, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think that was the intent of that. So, yeah, but, um, but Maggie may, uh, what we hear on the album, I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, really John said, okay, one day we're going to do an album and we're going to have Phil Spector reproduce it. And that album's going to have Maggie may on it. You know, of course mm-hmm. that never happened. Right. But, but what happens is that, uh, on January 24th, the Beatles by this time have moved to Twickenham to the basement 
of their Apple headquarters, and then they're in their new Apple studio. And, uh, you know, Glenn Johns is working there as a balance engineer. If George Martin is not present, which was the case for a good deal of the sessions, but certainly not all, and I think George Martin got more involved at the latter sessions, uh, he's also an unofficial, uncredited producer. And so the Beatles are working on Paul's song, Two of Us, which originally, when Paul introduces the song to the group, he introduces it to them on acoustic guitar to teach it to them. And then he moves to bass, and it's an electric song. Mm-hmm. Um, they eventually realize that, you know, Glenn Johns has suggested, gee, I think it would be better acoustic. So by the time they're at Apple, they're working on the song as an acoustic song. John is on his jumbo guitar, the Gibson J200. Paul is on his Martin D28. And George on this song is going to be playing the bass part on his Fender Telecaster on the upper strings of the, or the lower strings, I guess is what we'd say on the guitar, the bass strings mm-hmm. of the guitar. And Ringo is going to be on drums. And so they're doing Maggie May, um, you know, planning it? No, not at all. They're doing two of us. Mm-hmm. So they do two of us, and uh, sometimes at the end of two of us, they would break into something else. So one of the times that they actually finish two of us, they break into Maggie May. And they actually do this three different times. Um, and the only one that's really, you know, one is about 10 seconds, one is about, um, you know, a minute, and another is about 38 seconds, which is the one that ends up on the album. One of the other songs that they mess around with and we think it's an old Lennon McCartney song. It's called Fancy Me Chances. Fancy me chances with you. 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 And on Fancy Me Chances, same lineup. They're both on acoustic guitars. And then another one that they do is Bye Bye Love. And Bye Bye Love is one that I think possibly could see release. If it does, it would be interesting because... Now, we're talking about the Everly Brothers' Bye Bye Love, Right, the Everly version song, Bye Bye Love. And the problem with the version that we hear on the Nagra tapes is you hear all four members of the group. John and Paul are doing... Bye Bye Love by the Everly Brothers. And George is practicing his bass part for two of us, and Ringo is practicing his drum part for two of us. Mm -hmm. And you hear all four of them, so it sounds really eh. But if that was recorded, and I believe it was recorded on the 8-track, then you could have just the acoustic guitars and John and Paul's vocal. Yeah. And it might sound pretty cool. Oh, that would be so cool. So, you know, oh. now, will Apple do something like that? Maybe next August we find out. Yeah. <laughs> they put out some audio product to go with the Peter Jackson film, assuming that comes out next August. Yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's got to. But um... So Maggie May is really just, we're on our acoustic guitars, you know, we're working on two of us. Let's just do Maggie May. So yeah. that's how Maggie May happens. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like the ultimate little fly on the wall jam thing but what i think is actually funny is i was doing some research on this you know even though the beatles record this at twickenham uh or is this done at apple 
Apple. This is at Apple. That's right. Um, The song actually is recorded in Abbey Road in 1964 by Judy Garland. Why do they all know Maggie? Why do they love her so? No, Judy holds a candle up to her. And mister, if you've missed darling Maggie off your list, you're not half the man I thought you were. version of the song uh it's really yeah. weird so why do and of i have the vipers the vipers recorded it probably in 1957 at abbey Road, yep. we would yeah so uh so why do i have this at number 191 well uh, i don't know i mean i thought you would have had it at number one <laughs> at least top 20 uh you know i think this track kind of like dig it are maybe the the two big pieces that we get of the actual intent of the get back project um, it's that fly on the wall, behind the curtain look of the band, uh, you know, off the cuff, you know, like you said, relaxed. Um, and, you know, there was something I always found interesting about it when I first heard it when I was younger. It just seemed so foreign to me. You know, mm-hmm. it, like they're singing in these heavy accents. Uh, the song makes no sense if you don't know who or what or where Lime Street is. Uh, you know, and as a child, you're like, I have no idea what the subject of this is even about. Um, but you know, as, as weird and foreign as that is, it really feels like a blast of fun. You know, it sounds like, you know, John and Paul sound like they're having a really good time singing this together. And I feel like it's a nice, like kind of light moment, kind of surrounded by the weight of everything else on that record. You know, it comes after let it be, which has a lot of gravitas behind it. Cause it's a really big, important, you know, gorgeous song. So to kind of let the air out a little bit after that with Maggie May is kind of a nice little, you know, change of, change of pace. You know, it feels mm-hmm. kind of like a pub band sing along thing, uh, kind of like the, something that they would do if they'd had a few drinks in the studio uh, and we're just kind of kicking around, um, you know, and in the same vein, at the same time, you know, with Dig It, I think moments like that for me almost kind of bum me out in the sense of like, it makes you think about the things that you aren't seeing in that project. In terms yeah, of I mean, like the I mean, off the cuffness, off the cuffness nature of it, dig it's like about fifteen minutes long. Yeah, actually. Yeah, and um, what's interesting about it is that uh, during a large part of the first part of the song, uh, unfortunately, someone got the bright idea to hand Paul's uh, <laughs> Linda's daughter Heather a microphone. Oh yeah, and Heather sounds like Yoko Ono's <laughs> wailing into the microphone. Yeah. Now. Good news is when Glenn Johns edited to about five minutes, part of that portion of the song did have Heather on a microphone, but of course he was able to mix that out completely. Turn that down. Yeah. <laughs> so listen to it, you know, the five minute version, then he did a four minute version, and then Phil Spector did, you know, like a even shorter version of it. Mm-hmm. So it keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Yeah. And there were actually different takes of what you would call dig it. So it's it's an interesting track, but um yeah. You know, I think Phil Spector decided less is more. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I feel like, you know, this is kind of it's the kind of thing where it makes me feel like I maybe missed the original intent of the project. Like, I feel like I might have enjoyed what Glenn Johns put up for possible release a little more because it seems so much more natural and maybe a little more loose. And to me, I kind of want to see a little bit more of that of the band, but, you know. Yeah, you know, but if you go through the history 
and we'd be here four hours if we were to do that. It's easier for people to just, you know, buy my book, The Beatles Finally Let It Be. Right. Yeah, I get the my book. Uh, you know, available on my website, beetle.net. But anyway, um, the thing about it is that my, my basic premise is that the Beatles never really quite got it right. Uh, mm -hmm. What Glenn Johns wanted to do, it was a noble idea. Hey, we're going to do this kind of loose type thing of the Beatles and it'll be really cool in the Beatles, you know, the Beatles with their socks off. The problem with that is if you've ever been around someone that's taken their socks off, you know, their feet smell. Yeah. So, <laughs> so some of the things Glenn John did were, were really great. You know, you know, there's nice version of let it be. I like it. Mm -hmm. But the problem with Glenn John's was he said that he went more for the earlier recordings that were more in his mind, kind of fun and spontaneous. And so, you know, you've got, I've got a feeling, uh, you know, and the problem with the take of I've got a feeling he selects is that towards, as you're getting toward the end of the song, John's guitar kind of gives a little bit of a feedback typing and John stops playing and the group stops and it's a breakdown. And it breaks down before the best part of the song, which is when Paul's singing the I've got a feeling and John's singing the everybody got a hard year and they're doing it kind of, you know, over each other. Mm -hmm. And you don't get that. And the same thing with Dig a Pony, you get an earlier version. And so the mistake that Glenn Johns made was he used earlier versions that weren't as polished as the later versions. Yeah. So now we turn it over to Phil Spector, and Phil Spector goes the exact opposite approach. And Phil Spector, in my mind, totally ruins long and winding road yes thank I don't, you you know i can't stand it i don't like what he did you know <laughs> with let it be why do we need a you know you know a woman chorus on across the universe what was wrong with the way it was the you know all these things mm -hmm. but on the other hand phil Spector picks a much better take of two of us yeah he takes one from january 31 rather than one from a week earlier when the Beatles weren't doing the song as well. Mm -hmm. He takes songs from the rooftop performance, which are better than the earlier studio versions. And so I felt that Spectre never quite got it right. Yeah. So then in Anthology, there are tons of tracks from Anthology from those sessions. And you can make your own <laughs> Get Back album mm -hmm. from the Anthology sessions, if you like. Yeah. Then we get Let It Be Naked. When Let It Be Naked came out, I absolutely loved the album. The song sounded great. And the concept behind it was, what if, um, you know, Let It Be had been a normal studio album where we took the best take of the best songs and didn't have any of the talking and, you know, the Maggie Mays and all that other stuff. And as brilliant as it sounds, when I was doing the Beatles' Finally Let It Be book and I re-listened to it, the album had no soul. Interesting. Mm. I feel like it's I haven't so, listened back to it enough to view it with that kind of hindsight yet. Yeah, no soul, but great sounding. Mm -hmm. And so they never really got it right. Yeah. Now, what will we get from Apple this go-round? I don't know. If they do what they normally do, I guess we would get a Giles Martin remix. Yeah. So maybe... Maybe Giles Martin gets it right. It'd be nice to see. I mean, not, I feel like there's like there's got to be 
a compromise in it. Like not and not a compromise, but there's a middle ground. There's a middle ground for it to take things like, you know, mailman give me no more blues or mailman, mailman bring me no more blues. I love that version that's on yeah. anthology. You yeah. know, things like that I think are really cool. And if they can kind of just weave in and out of things, that might be a really nice little segue type thing. So I'll you be know, curious you know, to see what they do with that. Yeah, there's a track that was on not Glenn Johns's uh, Get Back bootleg, but on the acetate he prepared to show what it'd be like. And it's a song that's about a minute or so long called The Walk, which mm-hmm. is a really cool song. I don't know if that would ever be officially released, but I really like that one. Um, you know, so there's so many different things you could do. Um, you know, I kind of put together my, what I would do if I was, you know, if someone said, okay, Bruce, make what you think would be the ultimate, you know, album. And of course, uh, you know, everybody has that kind of do-it-yourself type projects, but mm-hmm. it's always fun. Um, you know, and you really think about it, um, Spectre did things that I really like and things I really don't like. You know, I love two of us. I love the rooftop stuff, but Long and Winding Road? Right. <laughs> you know, what, what was he thinking? I got and so much flack for about that. And that there's a much better take of Long and Winding Road, which finally comes out on Let It Be Naked from the January 31 sessions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are the kind of little nuances you get about it all. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on it, Julia? Uh, I just, it's such like, I, I appreciate the way that you see the song as being like a nice little moment of sort of joy and, you know, uh, I guess comfort and, you know, natural being in the studio i guess um but it feels like if the beatles were like around today this would just be like social media content like it wouldn't make it to a record like they would just like film a little short and like put it on facebook for likes mm-hmm. and then go back to making the the rest of the record like with real songs that they wrote that are great like yeah. it's just it feels so like on an album with so many great songs and then there's just like this weird little 40 second sort of over the top like exaggerated strange mm-hmm. i'm like what why why are you there <laughs> <laughs> and how do you th- what do you think of, like in in the context alongside of something like dig it um and what like what do you mean like do they both belong yeah, on do the they, album do they both do they both belong on the album i mean i guess like uh, i don't really care for dig it Obviously, we've already gone over that. Um, but like, I guess it's I guess maybe it's a bit more original mm-hmm. than just like a, a pub song. You, do you know what I'm saying? Like, at least it's like John doing his John thing. Yeah. Like being weird and on drugs. Um, <laughs> like <laughs> It's just kind of what he's doing. And yeah, that's what his cre- that's where his creative process put him on sure. that day. Sure. Um, so I guess dig it. Not I don't really care for it, but it it feels a bit more in place mm-hmm. than Maggie May to me. Interesting. Yeah, okay. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so at, at you, know, I mean, you know, in hindsight, you could have done an album similar to what Glenn Johns did, but rather than having the I've got a feeling with the breakdown, use you know, you could have the introduction where John says we'll do dig a pony and then to I've got a fever. Well, you could keep that John introduction, but then rather than using the songs that were recorded on January 22nd, I think that was the day they were recorded, use the rooftop versions of those two songs. Mm -hmm. So that would have been a way to do it. 
and then you could have had just, you know, a, a bonus disc of some of the, you know, fun little stuff that we're messing around with. The Maggie May, mm-hmm. you know, the Diggeth, you know, the, uh, you know, songs like, um, you know, the, the Buddy Holly stuff that they did, the Chuck Berry songs that they did. But quite frankly, a lot of those just don't sound too good because they had trouble remembering the words. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one of the funniest things is seeing them, you know, butcher their own lyrics from just a few short years prior. <laughs> yeah, that too. Um, you know, and the other thing is um, there's, a, there's a difference between seeing the Beatles having fun in a song and hearing it. And the prime example I give is this. One of the fun scenes in Let It Be the film is when the Beatles are doing um, you've really got a hold on me mm. and you can just see how much fun they're having the big grin on John's face George's face I mean and Billy Preston and it just looks like such a fun time in the studio but if you listen to it audio and don't see it <laughs> it's horrible really yeah it sounds terrible yeah because you know you're thinking I remember well, with the Beatles or the Beatles' second album, depending on where you're hearing it on, you've really got a hold on me. They, I mean, they, it's they so kill great. It. Yeah, it's great. But here it's loose and it's horrible. Yeah. But seeing them do it in a film is different. Mm-hmm. So I think in the Peter Jackson film, we may see them doing some other oldies that when you heard the audio of it on the on bootlegs, it was terrible. But seeing them do it, you might be, wow, this is really cool. <laughs> so, We'll have to see how that plays out because, as I said, certain songs are best seen and barely heard. (laughs) Yeah. And you've really got a hold on me as one of those. Yeah. All right. So at number 191, would you say I'm too high, too low, just right? Probably just about right because I don't don't know what you have below it, but there's so many that have to be above it. Mm -hmm. You know, you were above me, but not today. Anyway. uh... (laughs) What do you think, Julia? Um... I'm still mad that the long and winding road is behind us. <laughs> but no, Bruce has validated my opinion that Spectre ruins that song. Yeah, it's a great. I mean, look, it's like it's a great say, song. Bruce, say, Bruce, name your three favorite Beatles songs. OK, well, if you're going to make me say what's my favorite humongous hit. Hey, Jude, got to be. Mm-hmm. However, if by that you mean, well, you know, what is your favorite well-known album track on? in my life yeah. what would be your favorite obscure Beatles song if there is such a thing across the universe mm-hmm. not from let it be but you know probably the anthology version would be okay or you know the white album anniversary edition would be okay or my favorite the so called Hums Wild bootleg version that's never been released Ooh. you know so I mean it's kind of strange Long and Winding Road I first heard it on the Get Back bootleg when it was played on the radio on a station on Christmas Eve that I think was broadcasting out of Slidell, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I taped it, and I had that cassette tape of it, and it was this beautiful, simple piano ballad. Mm-hmm. And I loved the song. And when I heard the Let It Be album version, I heard the 45 first. I mean, I nearly threw up. It was so horrendous. Yeah. <laughs> and I hope the whole album wasn't going to be that bad, but then I loved two of us. Yeah. So, you know, so it's mixed emotions how that goes um you know whether a song belongs on an album or not okay prime example the white album does revolution nine belong on the white album yes it does i agree with you on that does what's the new mary jane belong on the album 
Hell no. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. If you ask me to say the Belongs worst the song, the worst song ever released by the Beatles, that would be What's the New Mary Jane is, is my number one for the absolute worst. That so was going to be one of, my, one of my rapid fire questions was your least favorite. <laughs> now, yeah, least favorite can be different from the worst. What's the new Mary Jane would be my least favorite and the worst. Yeah. <laughs> See, I would maybe say that that's probably the worst thing, but my least favorite, according to this list, is Sileptic. Well, that's okay, you know. Only because, I like, it's the kind of thing that, like, I heard it once and I never had any desire to go back to mm-hmm. it. I'm like, okay, yeah, no, cool. I it's, understand. it's curio. It's fun. So, all right. Mm-hmm. So we're on the same page for, for 191. I like that. You know, mm-hmm. one, one of the things I wanted to to look at real quick, you know, we've been sold this story for years about like how miserable a, a project this was for them. You know, yeah. do you think that that's actually true or do you think it's just a standard band that's been together for, you know, 12 years at this point in different lineups, you know, just getting to a point of grow, outgrowing each other, but still being able to like make music together and maybe they're just not connecting anymore like is it as miserable a project as you as 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 we've been told it is you think well it's it's like the white album that parts of the white album that were really miserable Mm -hmm. after all ringo did quit the group right but as the anniversary edition shows there were a lot of really fun times at that session yeah so i don't think it ever was a case that it's all miserable and then John, for a while, came out and said every album we made was miserable to do. And that, of course, <laughs> was true. Yeah. that was just what John's state of mind was at the time. Um, but I think that initially it was pretty miserable. Mm-hmm. It had its fun moments. Right. John strung out on heroin. The vibes are terrible. First of all, they were used to recording late afternoon and night. They're not used to getting there in the morning to record. Yeah. They're, just, they're used to being in Abbey Road Studios, not in a sound stage, which is cold and large and everything else wrong 9 a.m. call time like. yeah you know and then also you know they're going through these countless things over and over again and trying to feel their way through it but by the time they move to apple they're excited to be an apple for the first time mm-hmm. and then by the time george invites billy preston and billy preston shows up the mood changes considerably yeah and as they explained it look you know if you're sitting around your house fighting with each other and company drops by you're on better behavior right <laughs> you don't want to embarrass yourself in front of company mm-hmm. i you know i used to um you know have a friend when i would go over to her house you know i would have visions of what it must be like when i wasn't there and then the more i got to know them i began to find out what it was like when i wasn't there because after a while it that's ah, just Bruce there. We'll keep fighting. Oh, so, <laughs> but with Billy Preston there, I think the vibe got much, much better. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, look, when you hear them doing Maggie Mae, when you, you, you hear that fun vibe that, you know, they're enjoying doing this song. Yeah. John and Paul were enjoying doing Bye Bye Love. They enjoyed doing Fancy Me Chances. Mm-hmm. They really enjoyed the two of us session. Yeah. You know, they were having fun with it. Yeah. So, you know, and then on the other hand, there's a time when they're just getting sick of doing let it be over and over again mm-hmm. you know and and paul tries to rally the troops together and john well, it's you that's making it this way right and paul's like the true feeling of the true spirit of christmas you know? <laughs> you know and i mean you know there there are moments even you know but i don't know if billy preston was there that afternoon when they were doing it but anyway 
I digress. You know, we could do we could do five hours on let it be. Oh yeah. You know. But then you know, what does it say that you know John's gonna push for? You know, constantly trying to push the band into into covers of Maggie May instead of going. You know what, George? Let's try the art of dying. Let's try. Yeah, but I'm, you know, I'm not. I'm all not things must pass. Drum, I'm not convinced. Drama is really that we have to do Maggie May for this album. I don't. I yeah. don't really think that's the case at all. I think. Look, George. The problem was George had all these songs, and you know, when I started originally working on this book, I thought, well, you know. They really didn't care about, uh, you know, George's songs, but they spent a long time on All Things Must Pass at Twickenham. Mm -hmm. It just never came together for whatever reason. Yeah. Part of it was Paul had some backing vocal ideas that were horrendous. <laughs> and for whatever reason, it just didn't come together, which is a shame because I think it would have been cool if they had been able to pull it off yeah but for because sure. they didn't it becomes a great title track of george's album yeah so maybe it's just as well they didn't get it right yeah that's that's kismet that's a good turn of events yeah well yep. i think we've uh i think we put a good point on uh on maggie maybe put a good bow on it um yeah you got some time for a couple rapid fire questions before we let you go Yes, I do. As long as I get to plug my website and tell people oh, about of, the book. Oh, of Absolutely. course, of course. I have a whole like. You, you got plenty of time for that. <laughs> All right, rapid fire questions. All, All right, right, rapid fire. Favorite Beatles song? Go. Hey, dude. Least favorite. We already got that one though. Yeah. What's the well, new Mary Jane? New Mary Jane. Uh, favorite Beatles album. Favorite album is that because that's interesting. That's clearly the White Album. Mm -hmm. Not their best. Right. Not their most influential. Not their most important. Just my favorite. That's what I'm it's looking for. It's a bloody white album. Yep. What, uh, your least favorite, or the one you go to the least? Oh, boy. You know, oddly enough, Let It Be. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Especially since you just wrote a book about it. <laughs> right. You know, and, and look, and it's not that I love the song. It's just I find I find myself like it'd be, a, you know, I, I can't get over Long and Winding Road. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, who's your favorite Beatle? Well, you know, at different times of my life, different Beatles, but push come to shove, George. All right. I'm a little, oh, little well, love George for George. Love. I like it. I like it. Uh, your favorite memory associated with anything Beatles, whether it's with a song or meeting a Beatle or being at a concert or, you know, dancing with somebody to a Beatles song, you know, anything like that. Um, the safest one I can say would be... Um, <laughs> Uh, that I would say uh, watching the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show for the first time. And I remember, you know, having a Swanson's TV dinner with mm. macaroni and fried chicken and, you know, the, br the little brownie, the little brownie. Yeah, you know, that, that one did not think of a little brownie, but <sighs> I, you know, and I remember, remember that. And a lot of times on the anniversary, I will watch the DVD of that Ed Sullivan show in its entirety and, you know, have a macaroni and cheese, you know, whatever. <laughs> nice. <laughs> But nice. that's my favorite. Uh, the the most awkward memory would be um, being uh, having a romantic evening with a woman when she had the White Album on random shuffle in her room, and Revolution Nine came on. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that is a mood killer. <laughs> okay, next mood question, killer. Please. People often say, oh, "Wait, I have a question, really oh. quick." Because you said it was on shuffle. Does it make you twitchy when people listen to the albums on shuffle, like not in the album order? 
I mean, I, I can stand that, but in my mind, I know what's coming next. Yeah, yeah, like you anticipate it, and then it's not that song, and it's like, no, but I wanted that one. <laughs> no, but I mean, I grew up with the American album, so, you know, when I'm hearing uh, with the Beatles, it's like, well, wait a minute, that's not right. Oh, yeah, that's right. right. That's <laughs> so, all right, last rapid fire. People often talk about who's the fifth Beatle. They say George Martin, Billy Preston, Brian Epstein, Stu Sutcliffe, but... Who is the fifth vest? The fifth vest. If oh, you no, had that... to pick a fifth vest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it has to be George because he wasn't a member of the group. So George Harrison is the fifth vest. The fifth vest. Yes. I'm going to update his Wikipedia. The fifth vest. <laughs> the honorary fifth vest. <laughs> That's right. I love but it. But, you know, I mean, really, seriously, fifth Beatle, you know, to me... To me, it has to be somebody in the studio, which means George Martin. Yeah. And he did play on some of the tracks as a fifth Beatle. Agreed, yeah. I, I think that's probably the most accurate and smart way to, to look at that one. So you've got a new book out, The Beatles Finally Let It Be. Yes, uh, I do. Tell our listeners about it, if you would. Well, it's the fourth book in my so-called Beatles album series. And as all the album series books are, the introductory chapter pretty much it. It's a nice chapter about how the album was perceived when it came out in America. You know, um, if you're know, going through the singles that you would have heard on the radio first, in that case, and things of that nature. Uh, and, you know, and how we, I mean, for me, I first learned about the album in TV Guide. Because huh. TV Guide had an issue about showing the Beatles on the rooftop uh, for this TV special they were going to be doing. Mm -hmm. And then I heard the Get Back single on the radio, and then I saw the Beatles perform Get Back on the Glenn Campbell show, where it showed them on the rooftop doing Get Back, so the TV Guide issue came alive for me. <laughs> and so, you know, it goes through all that, then the bootlegs come out and the whole thing, and then how the album is received, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the reviews and stuff. Then there's a chapter on the same thing about what it was like in, if you lived in the UK. And then a chapter by my buddy Piers Hemmingson about what it was like in Canada. And then Al Sussman, a Beatle fan, does a chapter on what was going on in the world in 1970. And uh, Frank Daniels on what were the music and films of the first part of 1970. Um, you know, and then we have the fan recollections. And the fan recollections in this book were really cool because I was able to get three fan recollections from people who were on the rooftop for the rooftop concert. Oh, wow. wow. That's cool. And that was uh, Ken Mansfield mm -hmm. and Kevin Harrington, who was the guy who held the lyrics for Dig a Pony for John. <laughs> and then also Chris O'Dell, who George wrote a song about mm -hmm. Chris O'Dell. Yep. Chris was also on the rooftop. And then the next one, right, and Chris answers by saying, she remembers looking over from the roof and seeing the crowd below. And the next one I have is from someone who actually was in the crowd below that day. Oh, that's cool. cool. And then a lot of the other ones are people seeing the film for the first time or hearing the bootlegs or hearing the album for the first time. You know, those types of things. And even a fan recollection from Lizzie Bravo, who did the backing vocals on, of course, Across the Universe. Across the universe yeah. And she tells how that came about. So they're really fun ones. And then also one from a guy in Russia of, you know, getting a VHS tape of the Let It Be film, mm -hmm. you know, and things like that. So uh, that's a cool section. And then the final section, um, the main section is on how the songs were written and recorded. But also in the book, we also have a two-page section called And the Band Played On, which is, of course, that line from the Sam Temptation song, Ball of Confusion, which mm -hmm. has the line in it, the Beatles' new record. And the band played on. 
Yes, indeed. Yeah. And in that section and the band played on, I go through a lot of different oldies that the Beatles recorded during that session. And then the last section in the book is called Let It uh, Bootleg. And Nick Belmo, who is the ultimate authority on Beatles bootleg, uh, <laughs> put together a section on all of the get back bootlegs of importance. And it's a really cool section. Because, you know, it goes through the important things and a little bit of the history of it mm -hmm. and, and puts it in its proper place. I like it. And where can our fans uh, pick this up? Well, I, I, the place I'd love for you to pick it up is off of my website, Beetle.net, uh, because if you buy it from me, you know, I get all the you money. You get all the yeah. money. <laughs> um, and also, if you buy it from Beetle.net, the book will be autographed by me, and if you would like for me to personalize it, of course, I'm happy to do so. Lovely. And gladly do so. Now, if you do buy the book from Amazon, that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. And, you know, if you see me at a Beatles convention and you say, I bought this book on Amazon, will you still autograph it for me? Of course, I'll be glad to. <laughs> you know, I know people, a lot of people like buying through Amazon. I buy a lot of stuff through Amazon. Sure. But Beatles.net, if you do that, you know, I get more money that way. And it also has a collector's edition which is really cool. Ooh. The collector's edition comes in a nice cardboard O case, and it also comes with a special poster, which on one side, um, you know, is kind of a the album cover kind of breaking apart, which is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side shows all of the lobby cards from the movie and some of the production stills that United Artists released. Huh, cool. and, and there's also a giant postcard it's about nine by seven, and it's an Eric Cash illustration of the rooftop concert, where oh, cool. you get to actually see everybody who's up there. Yeah, wow. that's really cool. And it also comes with a bookmark. And also, if you buy the collector's edition, it's limited and numbered, five hundred, and all numbers. And also, the other cool thing about it is you get the digital version of the book absolutely free. Wow, awesome. Now. And there's when, wait, there's more. Wow. <laughs> the other cool thing about it is that when the Peter Jackson film comes out, I'm going to be doing a supplement called The Beatles Finally, Finally Let It Be. <laughs> be available for free download for anybody in the world who wants to download nice. it. Okay. If you want a print edition of it, we'll be selling it at a nominal fee uh, to make sure we can cover the shipping and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. But if you order the collector's edition of the book, you'll get that print edition sent to you absolutely free and automatically. So I highly recommend the collector's editions for those of you who are of the collector's mentality. Yeah. And uh, it's pretty cool. This sounds like the ultimate holiday gift, if I may absolutely. say. You know, and, 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 the, and the story here was, look, when the Peter Jackson film got delayed, did that mean should I wait a year to put my book out? And I thought for about three seconds and said no. First of all, I'd already lined up a printer, and it obligated myself to print it. Mm -hmm. And I had finished the book, and I knew people had already pre-ordered it. And I thought, it's not fair to make them wait a year. So I thought, I'll put it out, and, you know, it'll give something, you know, while they're waiting for this other stuff to come out, hopefully mm -hmm. they'll buy it and enjoy it like a book. Yeah, I think it'll be great for people to go into the Peter Jackson version with kind of like fresh eyes and fresh recollections on things. I think that's... Yeah. A, a smart move on on your part and as i told people from a sales standpoint 
you know, the book's selling well now. And then when the Peter Jackson film comes out, I get a second bite at the apple. Yep. I love it. That sounds amazing. I really want to read that because I feel like I need to beef up my Beatles knowledge. Like, because Jonathan knows so much about it and I am more of a casual fan. So I just don't have the knowledge in my brain that he does about the Beatles. So I really need to like brush up. And the book title is a bit of a pun because um, when I was growing up in the, you know, in that time era, we knew this album would be coming out. And, and if you lived in England, you'd hear the, the release date getting pushed back and pushed back. And then I started getting Rolling Stone and I'd be reading it. And, you know, and it was going to come out, you know, late summer. Then it was going to come out in either August or September. Then it was going to come out in November. <laughs> then it was going to come out in December before Christmas. Then it'd be out in January. Then it'd be out in March. And then, you know, finally we're told that it would be out in April or May. And I remember Rolling Stone saying that the album would be coming out, that Apple says the album would be coming out in April of May. And then it said, however, Apple didn't say April of May of which year. <laughs> and that was kind of the way. So it was like the Beatles finally let the album out. So so that's why I have a title, The Beatles Finally Let It Be. And also a bit of a pun because, you know, Apple would constantly be asked, when is the Let It Be film coming out? Yep. So now it was finally coming out. <laughs> and then, of course, it got delayed. In right. the typical facts. I love it. Well, yeah. the book is done. It's out. You're signing copies. You're shipping them, getting them to the people. Yep. What's next? Yep. Uh, well, I will probably continue doing books in the album series. And as I say, cryptically, um, the Beatles album series will return. But I am not at this time prepared to announce what the next book will be. But I am happy to say that um about halfway through it wow Ooh, okay okay you are just like a machine over there just like so, pumping out books that's amazing so there will be different i'm actually working on about two or three different books in the album series simultaneously wow wow so wow hopefully it'll be a lot of fun hopefully you fun. know when when the movie comes out next year uh they'll do a screening at the britannia as the, as they've done they've been real good to oh, the absolutely. beatles there and you're always there you know doing q and a's and they're great and I'm always walking out with a book every time we go. That's cool. every time. Yeah, certainly, I'll do a little bit of a presentation before the film to give it a little historical context. Yeah. So you know the Britannia Theater and I, we you know we we were looking forward to doing that uh, you know in September and of course obviously that wasn't going to happen. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, we'll be there whenever it happens. So. Yeah, great. Yeah. Well, Bruce, this has been fantastic, man. Thank you so much for taking time to uh, chat with us about this, and well, you know, glad to do so and. When you finish with going through all the songs and you're still doing Beatle podcasts, keep me in mind. I'll be happy to be a guest and we can talk Beatles about everything, whatever you want. I've got 190 more episodes to do, so I'll have you back on this one anytime you want to come back. <laughs> we got at well, least four years. Right. You're going in reverse order, so... Yeah, so there are plenty of other songs I'd love to talk about. Well, we're, we're going to, we'll, we'll slot you in for all your favorites. Great. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you so much, Bruce. I appreciate it. You have a great evening, my friend. It was a pleasure to talk to you. All right. Likewise. Thank Thanks, you. I'll Bruce. talk to you soon, man. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bruce Spizer, everybody. Amazing. Woo. Man. Just a wealth of information. I don't even know what to think about that. Ooh. Every time we've seen him do a Q&A, it's been super fun. You always learn something. Like, I mean, I yeah. obviously learn something, but like the fact that you always learn something every time you see him is incredible see, because you know a lot about the Beatles. <laughs> part of the reason I've learned what I have is through reading his books we've got three or four of them here on our shelves they are large and beautiful books 
with wonderful photos and art. And we're about to have the next book. And we will have the Let It Be book. Yes, Once I'm excited. I place that order. I guess I should read them now. You're going to have to. I probably It's time do. to start studying. Oh, dear. You co-host the Beatles podcast. You have to do some research. But it's kind of fun to, like, learn No, All right, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> do the work, lady. <laughs> well, I found this talk to be super informative and interesting and entertaining. Hope you listeners did as well. I'm sorry that he doesn't like the long and winding road. I am not. <laughs> glad to know that I'm not alone on my journey. Um, if you have enjoyed the show, what can they do? Uh, you can leave us a review. That's right. But only five stars because we're great and you know it. We're currently, I think, 19 out of 19 five-star reviews. <gasps> Ooh, thanks, y'all. So, That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so Don't you blow can, it for us. You can leave five stars. You can also leave, like, words. Mm. Like a written review. I do like, words of love you. Leave it our podcast reviews. <laughs> You're a mess. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So you can leave us a written review. Yeah. Tell everyone else how wonderful you think we are. Tell all your friends who love the Beatles to check us out. That's cool. Tell all your friends that hate the Beatles. Yeah. To hate listen. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, like our social medias, comment on the post and let us know where you think Maggie May belongs in this illustrious catalog of songs. Yeah, come chat with us. This 38-second ditty. We have super fun discussions on Facebook. I'm we laughing do. all the time. Y'all, all the goddamn time. And like, please, more Shit's Creek gifts. Like, <laughs> yes. more of them. Because they make me laugh every time. Always, always room for Shit's Creek gifts. <laughs> well, my friends, this has been a pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed it. We will be back next week with our final episode of the year. What? <laughs> oh, man. We did it. We did it. One year down. Not even, not a full year. I but. mean, let's. It was like half a year. It's when 2020. We... It, it, who even knows what we're doing this year? What is time? Yeah. What day is it? <laughs> Can you please tell me? <laughs> Sorry, y'all. So. A little, <laughs> little breakdown. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll be back next week with our final episode of the year. But there might be a little Christmas present coming. So stay tuned for that. Until next week, my friends, we will see you later. My name is Jonathan. And I'm Julia. And this has been Ranking the Beatles. Adios. Bye, y'all.